friends, and welcome to episode five of Dermosphere, the podcast by dermatologists for dermatologists and for the dermatologically curious. I am one of your co-hosts. My name is Luke Johnson. I am a pediatric dermatologist and assistant professor of dermatology at the University of Utah Department of Dermatology in Salt Lake City. I also see adults as well as children. And joining me on the line, of course, is... Michelle Tarbox. I am an assistant professor of dermatology and dermatopathology in beautiful, sunny Lubbock, Texas. And I also have special interest in dermoscopy and some areas of cosmetic dermatology. The goal of Dermosphere is to do some of the hefty, heavy lifting for you guys when it comes to keeping up to date on the literature. So each episode, we pick about six articles that we think are most clinically relevant for people practicing dermatology and go over them for you guys so that hopefully you feel like you're freed up a little bit for the rest of your day. So we're going to start with um, a couple, a two-part article from the JAD. This is Guidelines about Hydradenitis Superativa. So the full title of the articles are North American Clinical Management Guidelines for Hydradenitis Superativa, a publication from the United States and Canadian Hydradenitis Superativa Foundations. It's kind of a mouthful. Uh, the upshot is that there hadn't been a North American group that had put out guidelines for hydradenitis superativa before. So now we've got some guidelines, which is great because this disease is real tough to manage. A whole bunch of people were involved in this from the United States and from Canada. The co-chairs of the group were Drs. Ali Khan and Saeed, and the senior author listed is Yves Poulin, if I'm pronouncing that right. It's probably French. Poulin. <laughs> so I am going to take part one, and Michelle is going to talk about part two. So part one here is diagnosis, evaluation, and the use of complementary and procedural management. Um, so there are a couple things that stood out about this particular aspect, and one is that Hurley staging is potentially kind of helpful. Normally when I see patients with HS or with a lot of dermatologic diseases, including things like eczema, I kind of rate it subjectively on a mild, moderate, and severe scale. Mostly it's for myself, so that when I'm looking at the note, you know, three months later, I see what I kind of thought. Uh, but this Hurley staging is fairly easy. So basically, stage one is mild, stage two is moderate, stage three is severe. More specifically, Hurley stage one has the recurrent nodules and abscesses, but not really scarring. Stage two has some scar, but still confined to mostly one body site. And stage three is, you know, bad, scarring sinus tracts in multiple locations. Michelle, do you document Hurley stages routinely? We do now um, because we need to overcome certain early stage hurdles to get patients certain therapies. Um, I think before adalimumab was FDA approved for the treatment of HS, the documentation of that was a little, a little bit more sparse, um, but we've been a little more rigorous about it since that FDA indication came out. Getting over the Hurley hurdles. Uh, <laughs> that's what we do here at Dermosphere. So people often culture these patients with wound swabs and stuff, and they point out here that culture is not recommended unless you think there's some kind of secondary infection, like you see surrounding cellulitis or the patient has a fever, which makes a lot of sense, I think, especially in the emergency care or PCP office setting. They get swabbed a lot, and they come back with staph or strep, which are just kind of hanging out in the area and not really causing the issue. Uh, one of the things I thought was interesting is all of the comorbidities that can show up in people with hydradenitis superativa. 
brief tangent, I feel like HS has been getting a lot more interest lately, which is probably good because a lot of people have this and it's really a crippling disease. So it's nice to see more interest taken in it. Um, even more of a tangent. <laughs> we interview people for our residency positions and a surprising number of, you know, fourth year medical students said specifically that they were interested in working on this disease. So it's nice to see. I knew about some of these comorbidities that you normally screen for, like smoking, because, you know, sometimes physicians like to blame things on patients. So it's nice <laughs> to say, well, you know, if you stop doing this, then maybe you'd get better. Same is true with obesity. Um, and then metabolic syndrome kind of goes along with that. Depression, anxiety, I mean, it's easy to understand why people would be depressed if they had these sorts of conditions. We know the follicular occlusion tetrads associated Squamous cell carcinoma, I probably have been a bit neglectful in paying too much attention to that possibility, maybe because I normally see people who with this disease in their like in the 16 to 22 year range, and maybe it hasn't been longstanding enough to develop those things. Uh, but especially in people where it's been brewing for a lot longer in the perineum and buttock area, you want to take a look. And then the other thing they pointed out is inflammatory bowel disease is a significantly associated. So their strength of recommendation to screen for inflammatory bowel disease is an A I guess, on an ABCF range. So you just screen for that with review of systems type stuff, blood in the stools and abdominal pain, I guess. Okay, moving on to actual alternate or adjunct therapies. So one that I've started in liking at least to use, even if I don't know how helpful it is, is zinc. So they mentioned a couple studies of zinc gluconate, 90 milligrams daily. There were a couple studies, one with 54 patients and one with 22, and they got good results in just about everybody. Uh, the zinc also comes as a sulfate formulation, but that one's harder on the digestive system, I've discovered. So zinc gluconate is the one you want to use. Gluco for good and sulfate <laughs> for sickening. Zinc gluconate, 90 milligrams daily. They say it's a pretty weak evidence, but hey, I doubt it hurts and it might help. It helped um, in the studies anyway. Have you been using that one, Michelle? Zinc gluconate, we've actually been using one of the topical over-the-counter washes that has zinc gluconate as an active ingredient. Oh. Am I, am I allowed to say brand names? Uh, we can do whatever we want. Woohoo! Okay, so the Cetaphil Foaming Acne Wash has zinc gluconate as an active ingredient, and for mild cases of HS, I've found it to be helpful. <clears throat> Easier to tolerate than some of the harsher things like uh, sometimes BPO and some of these patients that have a lot of irritation, too. Do you use that wash for anything else? Oh, acne. I use it for acne, and I have some of my patients that have acne chelidalis nuke using it also because I think it's helpful um, with anything that's part of the follicular occlusion tetrad. All right. Um, moving on to some surgical stuff. So they say that surgical management of acute HS is based on low-quality, uncontrolled retrospective reports. My impression of the literature in general over the past few years is that the HS experts want us to have a lower and lower threshold to use some sort of procedural techniques use them in combination with medical techniques to try to get this disease under control. So um, one of the modalities that was first described in 2010 is what's called de-roofing, where basically you probe all the abscesses and sinus tracts, and then you cut out the skin overlying them. You Maybe you cure it out some of the like granula, um, granulation tissue that's in there, and then you just cover it with petroleum jelly and let it heal by secondary intent. I know there are some videos online um, about how to do this if you're interested in trying. I'm kind of interested in doing it, though. I haven't had a patient yet so far that's required it. Um, they had some trials where they 
did the deroofing on 73 patients. Or, I'm sorry, on 73 lesions. 17% of them recurred, which, you know, was pretty good. That means 83% of them didn't, and 90% of the patients were satisfied. Um, so I think this is a pretty viable option. And also, it seems like um, in a series of 590 patients, deroofing and wide excision were both about equal in effectiveness. And certainly, deroofing seems like uh, less invasive. You don't have to put the patient under general anesthesia, but you do have to pump them full of a lot of lidocaine in those areas. Um, incision and drainage by itself maybe offer some acute relief, but the lesions recur fairly quickly. So they point out that a small deroofing procedure, like with a punch instrument, rather than just like poking it with a needle, a bit of a deroofing lets it drain out and maybe makes it less likely to recur. And then there's a few other parts of this part one that I think are important. Uh, pain management, a little bit of a bugaboo for dermatologists potentially when it comes to HS. So they, of course, like oral acetaminophen and non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Um, they do mention topical analgesics, such as like topical lidocaine, which I admit I normally don't think about for HS. They say opioids are sometimes necessary. Um, I feel like dermatologists in general probably aren't super comfortable prescribing narcotics for hydradenitis or prativa, but maybe our threshold should be a little bit lower because these people certainly are suffering. Um, and sometimes they can have flares and there are ways to get those under control, um, some of which you'll talk about when you get to part two, and maybe giving them some pain control in the meantime might be helpful. And this part of the article ends with some discussion about laser light and energy sources. They talk about using NDYAG and CO2 laser seems to work okay in some studies for people with Hurley stage two or three. I don't know what more to say about it. I feel like I would start with deroofing before I would go to something like that, but I know there are some people out there who are a lot better with lasers than I am, so maybe they would do the opposite. <laughs> yeah, I think the, the laser therapies, um, it's an attractive idea in certain patients. I think that Access is certainly greater with the deroofing procedures. Um, you definitely have to have good patient selection for those deroofing procedures because the wound care is somewhat involved. And I think the patients that are a little bit more mature and have a little bit better um, literacy about their condition are gonna be better prepared to kind of undergo the wound care that's required after a deroofing procedure. One thing both versions uh, or both segments of this article uh, mention is actually an excellent resource for anybody who takes care of HS patients, which hopefully is most dermatologists. And that's this website, www.hs-foundation.org. It's really important to put that dash in there because if you don't, you're going to go to some kind of renewable energy webpage. So that www.hs-foundation.org. And it has great patient resources. It has uh, things you can print out and give the patients as handouts. It has access to something called www.hopeforhs.org, which is a great support group that started in Michigan but is spread all over the country. Um, because I think as this article touches on, this is a very morbid disease in terms of um, psychological and social impact on a patient's life. And so sometimes I think we're a little bit remiss in providing that level of support for patients. Yeah, I usually don't talk about support groups with my HS patients, but maybe I should. Maybe I should tell them about renewable energy as well. <laughs> I mean, always a good idea. Um, the other thing I liked about this first part of the article is it brought up the fact that, first of all, it's not an uncommon condition. If you look at across studies, it varies between 0.1 to 2% of the population affected by the condition. And it preferentially affects young patients in their third to fourth decades of life. As with most things that are unfortunate, it preferentially affects women. 
And um, even deeper into that, it more heavily affects patients of color and those with lower socioeconomic situations. So um, people who have fewer potentially access to resources might have more severe disease, and this can really impact quality of life. There's some discussion also about potential developments with genetic susceptibilities, um, including possibly mutations with gamma secretase or within the notch pathway that might predispose patients to developing this. And also talking about some of the inflammatory mediators that seem to be elevated, including C-reactive protein, TNF, which is an interesting um, thing to think about always because we know that adipose tissue actually produces TNF and might be part of the reason why patients who suffer from weight-related illness might have more trouble with this condition. Um, IL-6 and IL-17, and they also mentioned there's a threefold increase in PCOS in this patient population. So any of your female patients with HS, you should be asking screening questions for the possibility of both metabolic syndrome and polycystic ovarian syndrome. I also wanted to mention one more thing about this de-roofing thing. If anybody out there is interested, um, you need a little bit of special equipment because you need the probe, but I'm told they're only about 30 bucks. So pull the trigger on the probe. Yeah, the probe is, you know, a necessary part of it. You can use a larger bore needle, but you have to be careful with how you're using it. So a blunt end is preferred. Um, sometimes the sinus tracts are large enough that you can use certain metal instruments you might have in the clinic, but the probes, I think, are the better way to go about it. And when I've done it in the past, we, we've had the, the thin, delicate probes that you can actually use for this. And you just basically use the scalpel right on top of the probe to de-roof the lesion and then the curette to sort of take care of the excess tissue. Sounds fun. <laughs> it, it works well for properly selected patients. So I had part two of this article series from this North American Clinical Management Guidelines for HS. Um, and part two is topical intralesional systemic medical management of HS. Uh, their disclaimer at the beginning was that this only included an in-depth review of articles published up to March 16th of 2017, and then they selected high-impact articles through December of 2018. They also said that there's no guarantee that following the guidelines result in successful treatment, and it's not meant to set a standard of care, um, which I think is always an appropriate thing to kind of set as a caution. They have a great figure in this article for learners. So this is something I think that should be on the wall in every residency room. So figure one actually has a pictorial um, description of the Hurley stages, as well as the different treatments that are useful at different stages of disease. I'll and hold so I, the uh, image up to the microphone yes, for our if listeners. You can, if you can hear this beautiful image. Here um, it is, but, thumping the microphone. <laughs> it's a really useful image. So I really think this would be one of those things you want to cut out and put on the wall in your residency room or on the bulletin board. Very useful um, figure here. They start off discussion with topical and intralesional therapies in HS. Topical treatment often includes skin cleansers, keratolytic agents, and topical antibiotics. There is really only empiric level data for what agents should be used, but chlorhexidine, benzoyl peroxide, zinc, pyrithione, and in my experience, and I'm not an expert, um, the zinc gluconate wash are helpful. Resorcinol 15% cream has been studied in a small study of 12 women and was actually found to help reduce pain and duration of abscesses, but irritant dermatitis was frequent with this agent. Resorcinol is also used in a lot of over-the-counter topicals that are used for eczema and other inflammatory skin diseases. It's also in topical Vagisil and is a common source of irritant dermatitis in that area. But for 15%, I think you need to get it compounded. I've yeah, done 15 it one time, is, I think. 
Fifteen percent is definitely higher than is available over the counter, um, and I'm not surprised, having done research that involved resorcinol when I was in my younger years, that it would cause an irritant dermatitis with distilling things from plants, and you spill it on yourself a couple times, and you learn not to do that. Um, so helpful, but causes irritant dermatitis. Topical antibiotic, the only one that has good studies behind it was clindamycin 1% solution, and a 12-week randomized placebo-controlled study of patients with early-stage Hurley condition, so one or two-stage disease, did demonstrate reduced pustules, but it didn't really affect the inflammatory nodules or abscesses. So really, only the earliest stages of HS seem to be affected by topical clindamycin. And they do, all, of course, recommend the co-use of something else, such as benzoyl peroxide, to reduce the risk of resistance developing in these patients. I like benzoyl peroxide in general. Uh, that's what I go to for my watch for these patients, because I like that it has anti-inflammatory properties as well as antibacterial. Do you go straight to the zinc gluconate wash you mentioned, sort of first line? It kind of depends on how irritated and how sensitive the patient's skin appears to be. So we usually try to start with benzoyl peroxide, and if they can't tolerate that, we go to the zinc gluconate. Okay. So that usually works pretty well as an algorithm. Um, they also talked about intralesional triamcinolone, which I know I certainly use sometimes for my patients. Typically, um, they recommend the 10 milligrams per milliliter strength, which I think you have to be thoughtful about going to any higher strength because the areas that typically involved with HS are also very highly predisposed to development of stria. And so higher concentrations of triamcinolone may be problematic in those areas. Um, that And that these um, medications injected into the HS lesions can demonstrate reductions in physician-assessed erythema, edema, separation, and size, as well as a decrease in the pain visual analog scale after one day. So really useful in short-term acute management, not necessarily something that alters the long-term course of the disease, but helps with acute flares. Their next section was systemic antibiotics, and those are obviously a mainstay of HS treatment and have been for many decades. Um, many regimens have been used. Monotherapy can be used for mild disease, and that's a theme throughout this article is that earlier treatment is more effective. And um, another theme in this article is only adalimumab out of all of the therapies listed here has category A evidence. Everything is either categories B or C. So they had a single randomized control trial with tetracycline, 500 milligrams twice daily. To my knowledge, tetracycline is not available in the U.S. anymore. Have you been able to get it? I wouldn't want to. <laughs> so, you know, most people would use doxycycline or minocycline, but um, tetracycline 500 milligrams twice daily was utilized um, along with topical clindamycin and gave a 30% reduction of abscesses in um, both groups. Actually, sorry, that was comparing those two. And they didn't really have a significant difference between the topical clindamycin and the 500 milligrams twice daily tetracycline. Minocycline has only been evaluated in studies in combination with colchicine, so its use as monotherapy is kind of unclear. And then doxycycline twice daily was used in combination with either adalimumab or placebo in a group of patients in the pioneer studies um, on adalimumab, but wasn't independently linked to better outcomes on either arm. So I think some of the things most of us reach for first, which would be a tetracycline family antibiotic, um, may not be that effective in managing disease course. Clindamycin and rifampin in combination have been studied more than any other antibiotics used by mouth in HS with both used at a dose of 300 milligrams twice daily, which is lovely because it makes it easy to remember. And their review of these studies demonstrated response rates between 71 to 93% in 187 patients, which favors their use. Treatment right. usually, yeah. I was just gonna say, yeah, they used it for eight to 12 weeks and then repeated as necessary. Mm -hmm. But remember, um, 
if you're gonna do this, remember rifampin's potential effect on things like OCPs, and this is a, often a patient group that might be taking them. And also reminding to the people to tell the patient that um, their urine, tears, and sweat can turn orange with rifampin because that will potentially save you some phone calls. Um, and do it before Halloween. <laughs> Um, again, these are most useful in patients with mild to moderate disease. That's a theme here. Treating early is usually better than treating late. And um, it can also be used as an adjuvant therapy in patients with severe disease. They also talked about this triple combination therapy with metronidazole, moxifloxacin, and rifampin in a very small study of patients um, with, uh, with 28, well, about 28 patients. That's not too small. Um, so they had great success in patients with early stage one, six out of six patients. Um, eight out of 10 patients with early stage two, and two out of 12 patients with early stage three had complete response. So again, earlier treatment is, is ideal. So this is uh, moxifloxacin 400 daily, metronidazole 500 TID, rifampin 300 BID, all for three months, except for the metronidazole, which you only do for six weeks because of potential neurologic toxicity. Yeah, and I think that because that's a medicine that we don't tend to use for long periods of time as dermatologists, we probably forget that it can have cerebellar toxicity that can cause limb and gait ataxia or dysarthria, and can also cause peripheral neuropathy basically of all kinds. So it can cause motor, sensory, optic, and autonomic neuropathy. All of those have been reported with long-term metronidazole. So and they remember... Yeah, remember from the USMLE, they can also have a disulfiram-like reaction <laughs> with alcohol. So they're on rifampin and metronidazole. No sex, no alcohol. <laughs> Got to take all the fun out of their lives right now. But um, that did tend to be helpful. Relapse was common, but most patients did respond to a second course. They considered um, this therapy as a third-line treatment or as potentially a bridge to surgery um, for patients who are having a planned intervention. They looked at Dapsone in a retrospective review. 38% uh, of patients responded to Dapsone, but none of the patients with early stage three responded. And uh, another series of five patients noted some positive response um, treatment, usually for at least three months. Dosing yeah. studies. Seems yeah. like an act of desperation. Yeah, 50 to 200 milligrams daily were considered, but there's relatively low response rates. You have to monitor things very carefully with Dapsone. So again, they called this a, basically a third line treatment for the early, early stage conditions, which as we've seen, um, might respond to more conventional treatment uh, just as well. You mentioned the minocycline plus colchicine mm -hmm. um, combo. Did you want to talk about that? I'm going to touch on that a little bit more in depth when I get to colchicine, because um, they actually went into that more with the systemic immunosuppressants. They went into that study a little bit more in depth. But um, just briefly, they had patients that they studied with the combination of minocycline, um, 100 milligrams daily, and colchicine, 0.5 milligrams daily for six months. Then they followed that by colchicine alone for three months. And these were all patients with early stage one or two disease. It was 20 patients. All of the patients did improve. Um, so that could be a useful treatment in some patients, but colchicine by monotherapy did not seem as beneficial. So minocycline with colchicine seemed to have some beneficial effect. Yeah, uh, one slight correction. It's colchicine 0.5 twice daily. Oh my bad, sorry. Minocycline 100 daily. Yeah, which the minocycline dosing once a day was kind of different, but you know, I think since they were using it in combination with another drug, um, they had a, a uh, third uh, kind of point that they made about antibiotics where they brought forward this study of 30 patients that were treated with one gram IV erdipenem. Um, these patients were treated with that daily and they were predominantly patients with early stage one or two. 
Um, they were able to reach clinical remission in the early stage one or two patients. The early stage three patients um, also had improvement in quality of life, but didn't necessarily have clinical remission. Uh, patients did have frequent re relapses with discontinuation, and so most patients had to receive additional oral antibiotics after the edipanum was discontinued. Um, it was highly effective, but should be reserved for third-line therapy because a six-week course of daily IV medication is challenging to accomplish in most patients. Not and to they, mention not very cost-effective. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty expensive medication. Um, they thought it would be useful as rescue therapy or a treatment to get the patient ready for a surgical treatment uh, because of the barriers of home infusions. Concerns about antibiotic resistance and this sort of conserved antibiotic. Other antibiotics that we use a lot, including, you know, trimethoprim, sulfamethoxazole, beta-lactams, linazolid, and others have anecdotal reports, but no large studies. So they, you know, emphasize throughout this paper kind of a call to action for more studies to be done on this sort of neglected disease. They, uh, again, talk about the www.hs-foundation.org as a resource, and I do want uh, to make sure people are aware of that because I think it is a phenomenal resource. Hormonal therapies in HS can also be helpful. We know that androgens influence HS because it can flare related to pregnancy or menstrual cycles for a lot of patients, um, but the recommendations for hormonal therapies are all based on pretty limited evidence. So they had a one randomized controlled trial of hormonal therapy that compared ethanyl estradiol norgestrel with ethanyl estradiol and cyproterone acetate. And this was a double-blind controlled crossover trial with 24 women. Both therapies actually resulted in pretty similar improvement. Um, so 12 patients improved or cleared completely in that study. So these are OCPs, sort of standard OCPs we might prescribe for other reasons. Um, with or without cyproterone acetate, which is an antiandrogen we sometimes use to treat patients who have off-label, of course, who have androgenetic alopecia, especially when they have bifrontal, um, bitemporal recession. So they might be more more able to be um, receiving benefit from cyproterone acetate for alopecia if they have that bitemporal recession, but it's a very much off-label use. Um, a retrospective study of 29 women treated with anti-androgen therapies, which included ethanyl estradiol, cyproterone acetate, or spironolactone. Um, they had 55% achieving improvement, spironolactone, uh, 100 to 150 milligrams daily, gave improvement in 17 out of 20 patients, including complete remission in 11 out of 20, so about 55%. Um, but of the three patients with a severe HS, none of them cleared. So again, back to that theme that earlier is, of course, easier to treat. But 85% uh, improvement's pretty good. That's pretty good. I think that, you know, um, anti-androgen therapy is something we probably underutilize a little bit in the treatment of HS and something we should consider. The one uh, thing I'll mention is that I think a lot of these studies are not placebo controlled. So it's not 85% compared to 0% on placebo. Right. It's just 85% and that's all we did. So yeah. tough to say for sure, but 85% still seems pretty good. It's hard to do a study in something that can impact somebody's life as much as HS with a you know placebo control that has nothing in it. Um, if I had five inflammatory skin diseases I could get rid of with my dermatologic magic wand, in order, they would be pyoderma gangrenosum because it's terrible. But the second one would be HS. Then I'd go psoriasis. Then I'd do the lichen planey. So if I can get all the lichen planus in one, one shebang, I'd do that. Sure. And then the, the lupi would be my fifth. The lupi. The lupi, yes. Um, so... Let's see here. Maybe I'd switch lupus and like a place. There we go. Michelle's five most hated, <laughs> or I don't, most hated is not the right word. Most magic wand targeted. <laughs> 
So they also then talk about metformin, 500 milligrams, two to three times daily. Um, and that was associated with significant improvement in 18 out of 25 patients, so 72% um, in a study that was performed in an uncontrolled fashion. Um, so again, that, like we were talking about, this is, you know, 72% over just baseline without, you know, accounting for the fact that there's observer bias and people sometimes can improve just because they're being monitored. Um, in this study, they used the Sartorius score, which is a little bit different than the Hurley stages. The Sartorius score is made by including, uh, by counting involved regions, nodules, and sinus tracts. So they count the anatomic region involved, which can include axilla, groin, genital, gluteal, or other region, and you get three points per region. Then the number of score and scores of lesions, so abscesses, nodules, fistulas, and scars, and you get two points for each nodule, four points for each fistula, one point for each scar, and one point for each other, whatever other is. And then the longest distance between two relevant lesions, so nodules, fistulas in each region. Um, so less than five millimeters is two points, less than 10 millimeters is four points, and more than 10 centimeters is, sorry, is um, eight points. So basically the further apart the lesions that are involved with each other are. So longer sinus tracts basically get more points. I'm convinced I'm going to start including this in all of my clinical assessments. <laughs> I think it's a useful research instrument. I think that doing this in an average office appointment would be a lot more difficult than just measuring the Hurley stage. Uh, they also talk about the DLQI, the Dermatology Life Quality Index score. This is for met, the metformin trial still? This is for the metformin trial. That was, and the was DL, 25 patients. And the DLQI study, uh, DLQI instrument basically measures the impact of the patient's disease on their life. So a higher score means they have an extremely large effect on their life, and a lower score means that the condition is not affecting their life significantly. So this metformin study did improve both the Sartorius score by 72% and the, uh, or in 72% of patients, and the DLQI score in 64% of patients in a 24-week but uncontrolled prospective study. Yeah, um, I think both spironolactone and metformin look a little bit more effective than I had thought they were. Most of these, especially in female patients, which is the majority of patients affected by HS. So most of the patients in this um, metformin study were females with features of PCOS. So they're kind of a pre-selected patient population that might respond more favorably to metformin given the tendency towards insulin resistant in patients with PCOS. And then they had another study of adjunctive or monotherapy with finasteride in 1.25 to five milligrams per day. And I apologize, that was just in four reports. So there were, there were just four patients in total. Um, so that was a smaller series of information, but finasteride theoretically could have benefit, which makes sense. Um, they mentioned that there's anecdotal concern about progesterone-only regimes worsening HS, and I think all of us have probably observed this. Um, you know, Depo is one of my le less favorite medications for a lot of reasons, but this is one of them because I think it worsens HS and it worsens acne and causes sometimes weight gain in patients. So I know you have to use it for chronic pregnancy of childhood sometimes, but otherwise I think it should probably not be used if you have other good alternatives. Uh, they said hormonal agents can be considered as monotherapy in females with mild to moderate HS or as adjuncts for more severe disease, especially if the patients report flares around menses or if they have features of PCOS. And then they have a very nice table, table one here, which demonstrates the strengths of recommendation for the different therapies in the management and treatment of HS. They move on to discuss retinoids. Um, retinoids have been frequently used for HS because the pathogenesis is considered to be similar to acne vulgaris, but they point out, as I have found in my practice, that results in HS are somewhat disappointing compared to what we see with cystic acne. Um, 
So that sort of is consistent with our understanding of HS as a follicular disorder. Sometimes we use isotretinoin. They've also done some studies with acetretin. So they had four retrospective and three prospective uncontrolled cohort studies with five or more patients that they looked at with isotretin for monotherapy. So they had a total of 207 patients total in these combined studies. Doses ranged from 0.5 to 1 milligram per kilogram per day, and the mean duration of treatment was between four and 10 months. Early stages were usually unreported, uh, probably because a lot of these studies were done before adalimumab came out and had their pioneer studies when people started thinking about actually recording the early stages. Um, so they had kind of varied um, reporting with that, but they had approximately 41% improvement um, with better responses in, of course, milder disease. And it's most helpful in patients that have concomitant nodulocystic acne, which makes sense. And it's probably more, more helpful for their acne than for their HS. Um, many consider acetretin superior to isotretinoin, um, which I think is reasonable considering the way the medications work. Uh, but comparative act evidence is lacking. No one's done a head-to-head -head trial of these two things. And of course, acetretin is contraindicated in the largest patient population affected by HS, which would be women of childbearing potential. Um, they did have three cohort studies and one small randomized controlled study, which was acetretin versus acetretin and wide excision. And these were mostly in patients with early stages two and three, with about 50 patients total in both of these combined, in these combined studies. And their typical dosing was 0.5 to 0.6 milligrams per kilogram per day, with treatments ranging from three to 12 months. And they had 54% of patients in these combined studies with improvement. There was another study of a, a retinoid that we don't have available in this country um, called alatretinoin. Alatretinoin um, is a retinoid that's sometimes used to treat different conditions that can include metastatic lung cancer of certain types. But they had a single perspective uncontrolled study of 14 females receiving alatretinoin. And this was 10 milligrams per day for 24 weeks, which demonstrated improvement in all patients. They had a significant improvement in 78.5% of patients and 42% had a reduction in sartorius scale of more than 50%, with the DLQI decreasing from 17, and 17 on a DLQI means that it has a very large effect on patient's life, to two, and a DLQI of two means a small effect on the patient's life. So significant improvements in quality of life there, but again, alitretinoin is not available in the United States. So that came from our Canadian um, allies here in the study. Thanks, Canada. <laughs> I like that. Um, so that was interesting. So then we move on to discuss systemic immunosuppressants. Amuse, uh, uh, the use of immunomodulators has been reported. Methotrexate was studied. Long story short, it didn't work, so not recommended. Azathioprine was also studied, showed only slight improvement, basically from these studies and also considering azathioprine's other side effects, not recommended. Cyclosporin has been studied in fewer than 20 cases, with responses generally being poor. Um, case reports of use up to six mg per cake per day uh, in combination with other therapies have noted improvement, but relapse is frequent with discontinuation of the medication and side effects are often limiting. So not necessarily a strong recommendation there. And then they discussed that colchicine combined with minocycline trial where in combination with, uh, so colchicine 0.5 milligrams twice daily in combination with minocycline 100 milligrams daily for six months, followed by colchicine alone for three months showed improvement in all patients. Um, so that's something that might be useful for some patients, but it's not useful in monotherapy. Systemic steroids can sometimes be used just the same way we use it sometimes for patients that have acne fulminans. So it's used to treat that severe inflammation in these patients. 
there was a case series of 13 patients and they had six patients that was uh, out of their 13 that was 46 percent of them with a partial response and five which was about 38 percent that had a good response with the addition of 10 milligrams of prednisone to their existing regimen and that included five patients who didn't initially respond to adalimumab so some uh, they do note that most experts do use prednisone pulses or multi-week tapers for rescue therapy for flares or if they're bridging to another long-term therapy yeah i thought this was a standout portion of the article because i normally don't think about using prednisone for hydradenitis suprativa so it sounds like maybe it would be useful for flares and it's a funny thing because we think about it for acne fulminans or when people have really severe nodulocystic acne flares, but we don't just, our brain doesn't just go there necessarily with HS. And so I, I agree with you. I think that's kind of a standout pearl there. Um, immunomodulation, um, they talk about biologics in HS and that it's becoming kind of a cornerstone of therapy for moderate to severe HS. They're looking at targeting TNF as well as IL-1, IL-12, and then IL-23 as well, and then TH17 pathways. Adalimumab is approved by the FDA for the treatment of moderate to severe HS, so that's really stages two and three. Yeah, though something that came out that I hadn't quite realized before I looked at this article was that the evidence, like, it's not super dramatic. So it is not overwhelming. I was their, surprised by that, too. Their best, uh, best thing that looks like got it approved was, like, 42% responded on adalimumab versus 26% on placebo, 42 versus 26, and then 59 versus 28. That's... I mean, it's better, and I'm it's glad adalimumab's improved, but it's, it's still pretty like... dead gum hefty dosing too, because it's 160 milligrams at week zero, and then 80 milligrams at week two, and then 40 milligrams weekly, starting at week four. So that's an important pearl, I think, for those studying for recertification. Well, not recertification, unless it's medical derm. Um, if you're recertifying in medical derm, or if you are uh, taking your initial certifying exam, I think knowing this dosing regimen for HS with adalimumab might be good board spotter. So again, it's a real hefty dose at week zero, 160 milligrams at week zero, then 80 milligrams at week two, and then 40 milligrams weekly. Different, very much different from the psoriasis dosing for HS. Yeah, a lot more. And so, and then the Pioneer 2 study actually uh, continued treatment with concomitant tetracycline in, uh, class antibiotics during the clinical trial period. And so that's where we got that 59% versus the 28% in placebo from the Pioneer 2 study. So that's actually adalimumab with an assist from a tetracycline. Um, so I was surprised that the numbers were a little slightly bit underwhelming. This is a very difficult condition to treat. So like they like to say when we're doing fundraising, every little bit helps, but um, this is a very difficult disease to treat for sure. Um, so they had uh, the ability to do crossover in both of these Pioneer studies and noted that some patients take longer to respond. So some non-responders at week 12 um, actually achieved response. 40% of the non-responders achieved response at 36 weeks with continuing treatment. But um, half of the 12-week responders actually lost response at week 36 despite maintenance dosing. Kind of want to makes you want to bang your head against the wall when this is the one medicine that's approved for it. It's it's a, it's a little bit challenging. Um, they report also on uh, the study results for infliximab. There was a single study double-blind placebo-controlled trial with infliximab 5 mix per keg versus placebo at week 0, 2, and 6, then every eight weeks on an open-label uh, open crossover study. And they had 4 out of 15 patients receiving infliximab, so 27%, versus 1 out of 18 patients receiving placebo, 5%. 
achieving that primary endpoint of a 50% or greater decrease in the HS severity index score. The other thing that stood out to me um, reading this article is that there's multiple different severity scoring regimes in place for HS, and it does make it a little difficult to compare results across, uh, across trials, and so I think it's important to kind of familiarize yourself with the different instruments. Uh, they said that the post hoc analysis of the patients receiving infliximab and the patients receiving placebo, they had a 25% or greater improvement in the HS severity index score. And um, they also noticed significant improvements in the DLQI score, the pain visual, um, visual score, as well as the mean um, physician global assessment score. So definitely some improvement, but not a striking number. So um, infliximab is sort of one of those that they bring up in this table. Um, one is having kind of category B evidence where it has some evidence, but it's somewhat inconsistent as to if that's going to be helpful or not. They also yeah. Have, yeah. yeah, you may have just been about to talk about this, but they also point out a case series with systemic review and showed response was reached by 78% of patients, which is significantly better. Yeah, significantly. Uh, and then the, maybe some of this is the dosing. So they point out that expert experience suggests you should do 10 mg per kg every four to eight weeks to try to get optimal control. I don't know. I feel like infliximab is probably going to get approved for this at some point. I think it probably will. And I think this is also a theme that when we do use biologics, we're usually having to use them at higher doses than what we would use for psoriasis. There's also a patient population with an overlap between psoriasis and HS, and it's higher than you would expect by just chance. So some of these patients actually have both things. And before HS had indications with TNF-alpha inhibitors, patients were actually getting sometimes approved for their psoriasis and getting side benefit with their HS because of the medication that was being used for their psoriasis. So etanercept, this isn't probably going to surprise anybody, but um, so the data supporting the use of etanercept in HS are somewhat conflicting. They evaluated doses between 100 to 500, sorry, sorry, between 50 to 100 milligrams weekly. They got low-level evidence um, from incompletely validated outcome measures in a single-center randomized double-blind placebo-controlled study um, that showed basically no statistical improvement in patient or physician-reported outcomes. I'm sold. Yeah, and there were three prospective open-label trials, including 31 subjects that demonstrated mixed results. So, you know, we know that etanercept is not our strongest TNF medication, family medication, um, and it's not a surprise that it's not fuerte enough to deal with HS. HS is like the big guy at the bar. You got to pull out your big guns. Um, galimumab. We do uh, not recommend getting into fights with big guys at bars. <laughs> yes, don't do that. This Regardless. is just Michelle's own Friday night kind of activity. Yes, don't Tito's and tan, and don't get into fights with big guys <laughs> in the park. So galimumab, um, they had a limited data supporting the use of galimumab, which is two case reports. One case report had no response with 50 milligrams every four weeks. In the other, um, they had an ulcerative colitis dosing regimen with 200 milligrams at week zero and 100 milligrams every four weeks, starting at week two, showed some helpful um, tendencies. So again, higher doses maybe recommended for HS. So the themes of this article are treat as early as possible because early treatment is better and higher doses of medication are often required to achieve therapeutic effects, especially with the biologic agents. Anna Kinra, they had a placebo controlled and randomized controlled study of 20 participants and six out of 10 participants were treat that were treated with Anna Kinra 100 milligrams daily reported a reduction in non-validated HS disease activity score at 12 weeks compared with two out of 10 treated with placebo. Um, they 
retrospectively assessed um, the hydradenitis score uh, 12 weeks in seven out of nine patients receiving anakinra versus three out of 10 patients with placebo had improved. And they had changes in, uh, they, so they modified, uh, they did an analysis to look for changes in the sartorius score, the VLQI and the visual acuity scale for pain, and they didn't have any significant difference between the different treatments groups. So the um, anakinra is basically something they would only recommend if a patient failed to respond to TNF inhibitors. And anakinra got category B evidence, but it's not recommended unless TNF inhibitors didn't help. Ustekinumab, which is the human monoclonal antibody against the P40 subunit of IL-1223, had an open label study of 17 subjects with moderate to severe HS, so early stages two to three. And they were given uh, ustekinumab 45 milligrams or 90 if they weighed more than 100 kilograms every 12 weeks. 14 of the 17 patients had a mean improvement of um, 46% in a modified sartorius score and eight subjects achieved a 50% reduction in inflammatory lesion count, so some benefit there. Reductions in DLQI and BAS score were not significant, so they didn't feel like it made a huge impact in the quality of life necessarily. Um, patients in six additional case reports had variable responses. So again, they think higher dosing, similarly to, similar to what's used in inflammatory bowel disease, might be more successful for HS, but there's no data on that yet. And then they delve into how do we treat this in pediatric and pregnant patients. Hopefully not pediatric pregnant patients, although that does happen sometimes. So literature on the treatment of pediatric HS is very limited, and usually it's going to be patients that have very severe disease. Uh, several authors recommend if you have a pediatric patient that presents with HS, they should have an endocrinologic evaluation, um, and they suggest that HS may be more severe in pediatric patients um, and affect more sites than adult HS does. So they think they need a phys complete physical exam as well as looking for signs of metabolic syndrome and precocious puberty. And then further evaluation and management kind of stems from history and examination findings. Um, a lot of these manage? are if they're especially young. So yeah. if they're age 11 or younger and they have other suspicious physical exam findings, it might be worth looking for precocious puberty. But certainly there's lots of like 16-year-olds oh, with yeah. HS. And... I think with a condition that's hormonal like this, pediatric sort of has like quotes around it. And it's, you know, I think it would be patients that potentially you would, nece would not necessarily have expected to go through menarche yet, you know? Yeah. So the goal, of course, is to minimize scarring, progression, and need for surgery in these pediatric patients. But you, they recommend being open-minded because early procedural interventions may actually have the potential for cure in some patients. And you know, I think some, some centers that have done more radical surgical treatments have found that younger patients have better outcomes. So mm -hmm. something to think about. Um, with pregnancy, uh, HS may improve, worsen, or be unaffected by pregnancy. So you have three options, and basically they encompass every possible outcome. Pick um, one. Yeah, pick one. Um, treatment of pregnant women in HS, of course, you have to be very careful because a lot of the medications would be contraindicated in pregnancy or breastfeeding. Um, so you have to think about that when you're treating patients with HS. But uh, we haven't actually studied the medications used for HS in pregnant patients, and I don't think we probably ever will. And so they make a push, of course, to individualize treatments for pregnant patients. Topical treatments, procedural treatments, which I thought was interesting. I think they mean local procedural treatments and not ones that would require general anesthesia. And lifestyle modifications, which, you know, tell a pregnant woman to lose weight. I think that's, you risk, you need to learn the duck and weave if you're gonna do that. Right. Um, <laughs> should be considered first-line treatment, systemic agents should be considered second-line treatment. Retinoids and hormonal therapies, of course, are contraindicated, as are certain immunosuppressants. 
Um, last time I checked when we were still using pregnancy categories, adalimumab was category B for pregnancy. Uh, I'm not sure if they've adjusted that since the last time I read up on it, but I think theoretically you could potentially consider that, although I'm not sure if it would necessarily be approved because that can be a challenge. So their conclusion is that EHS man management is difficult. It requires a lot of um, thought about the individual patient and rigorous guidelines are really hard to make because a lot of data is unavailable. And again, they kind of make a little impassioned plea for more people to do studies so we have better data to draw from. I think that's happening as well. Uh, looking into articles for next time, we might talk a little bit more about HS, though some of our listeners might be tired of hearing about it since we just spent 45 minutes on these two articles. So. Dear listeners, we'll go a little bit quickly through our next articles, but these were um, some of the meatiest ones, and I thought important because sometimes if you see a patient with hydradenitis superativa on your schedule, you're like, duh. At least I sometimes am like that. I don't want to assume that our listeners are like that, but reading these articles is helpful. Um, I think the most important things I got out of it are zinc gluconate, 90 milligrams a day, easy, might help. Spironolactone and metformin, both more helpful than I often give them credit for, though I think the dosing um, is helpful. You got to go a little bit moderate. So spironolactone, at least 100 milligrams, and metformin, usually 500, at least BID, if not TID or greater, is helpful. Um, and then the prednisone thing, as I mentioned before. I agree. There's the things you don't think about. And, you know, I think that some of us might have expected stronger numbers out of the adalimumab studies and you know, we need to know that nothing's really a miracle for this condition and a multidisciplinary approach is often needed. So if you're tired of hearing about hydradenitis superativa, you'll be happy to know that our next article is about excision of nevus sebaceous. Um, so this is from the journal Dermatologic Surgery in March 2019. And the title is Optimal Timing for Surgical Excision of Nevus Sebaceous on the Scalp, a Single Center Experience. Uh, this is out of Korea, and the authors include, apologize if I mispronounce your names, Suk Hyun Kong and Yu Sung Choi. So this is an issue that I deal with sometimes because I'm a pediatric dermatologist. I see kiddos, sometimes infants coming in with uh, what turns out to be a nevus sebaceous, and then we talk about whether or not we should excise them, and if so, what would the best time be? So what these guys did was looked at a retrospective re review of their excised nevus sebaceous, and they looked for complications of the surgery. So the complications they looked for were hair loss, hypertrophic score, and widening of the scar with a follow-up of 12 to 15 months. They had about 60 patients evenly distributed among adults and children. Children were classified as anyone under 18. And the complication rate was higher in children than in adults by a significant margin. So 28% complications and about 7% in adults. And once again, these complications are specifically hair loss, hypertrophic scar, widening of the scar. Um, it seemed like age was really the only variable that made this complications more likely. They also looked at tumor location, the shape, the size, and there was no association with complications. They did note that the size of the tumors was larger in children, um, and they were the ones that had the most complications, but still it seems like the size itself didn't particularly matter. Um, all the surgeries were performed by the same position, the same physician, I'm sorry, and were all sort of simple closures. Um, and they point out that of the eight cases of hair loss, six of them were in children, and then, so that's most of them, and hypertrophic scarring and widening of the scar were only noted in children. So they finish by saying, you know, if you need surgery in childhood, try to do it after age eight when the calvarium shows consistent development and something I 
admit I don't always pay attention to when the pediatric patients can cooperate with wound care. <laughs> makes a lot of sense. Um, what I've been telling patients so far is that we don't really need to excise these from a medical standpoint because they don't actually grow as much skin cancer as we thought they did. Uh, this article reminds us and potentially reminds our residents who could potentially be taking some board exams that the most prevalent secondary benign neoplasms are trichoblastoma and syringocyst adenoma papilliferum. Um, I think we know the basal cell carcinoma is the most common um, malignant neoplasm to arrive in, but you might not know that they can grow lots of other stuff like squamous cell carcinomas, cratoacanthomas, and sebaceous epitheliomas. Anyway, you don't necessarily have to excise these unless you notice something suspicious growing in them, but oftentimes we do, both to reduce that risk and sort of for cosmetic reasons, because especially around puberty, they can get verrucous and gross and kind of get in the way. Um, but it seems like if you can wait until the patient's head at least is kind of adult sized, you might avoid some of these complications. I was a little bit disappointed that they just called anybody who was under 18 a pediatric patient because I think it would be more helpful potentially to substratify based on patients who had the surgery done before, say, age 14 or something. Um, I'm not quite sure when your head is mostly done growing. Um, <laughs> But I think that's where I would target because you kind of think that a lot of these complications are mostly from growth, just the fact that you're growing puts tension on the scar. And I feel like in some ways you can extrapolate that to other sorts of surgeries as well. Um, so the benefit of doing surgery on kids is they tend to heal better, you know, for the most part, and especially if they're real little, um, but they're growing. And as they grow, the scars kind of widen. So there's this tension there, both literal and figurative. And thought it was helpful to have this information both specifically for the scalp excisions of Neva sebaceous and then for scalp excisions and then potentially for excisions in general. I think so too and I often have this discussion with parents because they kind of won it off you know yesterday but sometimes you have to talk to the parents about first of all the child has to be able to hold still for the surgery because I think putting children to sleep for uh, removal of nevus sebaceous, unless it's very large and cosmetically disfiguring, is probably a little bit excessive. Um, I, I talked to them about the fact that the scar is going to look better if we get them closer to adult size and there's, it's going to stretch less as their skull grows. And I feel like that sort of happens puberty-ish. And usually that's when they're a little bit more able to hold still for the surgery and probably comply with the wound care required. Um, I think that everyone's probably had a pediatric patient that's opened a wound by bonking their head on something. <laughs> so I think that, you know, those considerations need to be taken into account as well. So I'm glad that somebody's put something out there. We can show parents, look, they'll, it'll look better if they, you wait a little bit. Yeah, 28% versus 6.7% complication rate. There you go. I like it. I like it a lot. Let's talk about something a bit more broad-reaching than just dermatology, Michelle. You got anything in mind? I do, in fact. I'd like to talk today about Medicaid work requirements, results from the first year in Arkansas. So this is a study in the New England Journal of Medicine. The chief authors are Benjamin Summers and Arnold Epstein, and it's out of uh, Massachusetts. And this is basically looking at changes to Medicaid. Uh, as of April 2019, nine states have received approval by means of a special federal waiver to implement work requirements for Medicaid coverage, and six have applications pending. So 15 states with possible um, work requirements for Medicaid. So you have to work in order to get Medicaid. I guess mm -hmm. you go into detail about this. Oh, yeah, for sure. So um, according to the CMS, um, work requirements, also known as community engagement requirements, uh, may promote better health and help beneficiaries escape poverty. That's the sort of selling point 
for them. Critics dispute these claims and worry that the policy will lead to large coverage losses. And spoiler alert, the critics turn out to be right based upon this study. So work requirements have been previously used in programs such as SNAP, Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program, and the Temporary, Assistant for Needy, Temporary Assistance for Needy Families Program. Studies of those programs showed that work requirements produced modest short-term increases in employment, but no increases in income, but they haven't studied the effect of work requirements on health insurance programs. So Arkansas got to lead the country in being the first state to implement work requirements in Medicaid, and they targeted Medicaid beneficiaries between the age of 30 to 49 years of age, who were then notified by the state by mail and informational flyers that they were required to work 80 hours per month or 20 hours per week. I wonder where they picked up these informational flyers. I don't know, right? Uh, participate in another qualifying community engagement activity such as job training or community service, or meet criteria for an exclusion such as pregnancy or disability. If they had three months of non-compliance or non-submission of monthly online reports within a year, they would be removed from Medicaid. By December of that same year of 2018, nearly 17,000 adults were notified by mail that they had been removed from Medicaid. In March of this year, a federal judge halted, these pro halted the program due to concerns about its effect on coverage because they had 17,000 people knocked off the Medicaid rolls. So Several if I have medicated, or have, I had Medicaid in Arkansas and I was between age 30 and 49, mm -hmm. I had to fill out some form every month saying I worked for 20 hours a week or I was exempt because I'm pregnant or disabled or I think a full-time student or mm -hmm. I was doing something else like looking for work or doing community service or something. Yeah, or job training, exactly, exactly. So um, several analyses sort of predicted the results of Medicaid work analysis, work requirements, but there hasn't really been an independent, independent body that's looked at this. So they wanted to assess early changes in insurance coverage and employment. So they want to look at the good and the bad possible outcomes of having a work requirement for Medicaid in Arkansas. So they did a telephone study to look at changes in outcomes before and after the implementation of work requirements in Arkansas among persons 30 to 49 years of age compared with other Arkansans, which is apparently the right way to say that. The demonym. <laughs> a word I know from Wikipedia. That's awesome. The demonym for Ar people from Arkansas is Arkansans. So they compared that to Arkansans uh, between 19 and 29 years of age and those 50 to 64 years of age who were not subject to the requirements in 2018. They also compared these, these study patients with adults in three comparison states, Kentucky, Louisiana, and Texas. Kentucky expanded Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act, planned to introduce work requirements, but that was blocked by a federal judge before the implementation. They also note that neither Louisiana, which did expand Medicaid in 2016, nor Texas, which of course, because it's Texas, did not expand Medicaid in 2016, have implemented work requirements. All four study states are in the Southern Census region and have poverty rates in the highest quartile of the United States, so they're nicely comparable to each other. Go Texas! Um, they used baseline data from 2016 before the implementation of the work requirements for these states from a previous study conducted by the same team. So they used cell and landlines um, and conducted interviews in English or, and in Spanish um, in, between November and December of 2018. And their sample study included patients that were US citizens between the ages of 19 to 64 years of age um, with a family income below 138% of the federal poverty level. So that's $16,600 for a single adult or $33,900 for a family of four. And that corresponds to the income limit for the ACA Medicaid expansion. So they did a very interesting study here um, where they wanted to 
kind of try to limit the impact of confounding variables. And they did this using a kind of interesting approach, which is a difference in difference in difference model or a triple difference model. So that's kind of something probably as dermatologists, we haven't heard a whole lot about before because it's actually most commonly used in social um, like impact studies for things such as, you know, Medicaid expansion and, and things along those lines. Um, but a difference in difference in difference study kind of is a whole triple nother, D. yeah, the triple D basically. It's, it's sort of taking a difference in difference model to a whole nother level to quote Kim Peel. So um, difference in difference study, that is a statistical technique that's used in economic econometrics or social sciences that's trying to mimic experimental research design by studying the differential effect of a treatment on a treatment group versus a control group in a natural experiment. So in, if it had been just a difference in different study, they probably would have compared their Arkansans that were subjected to the work requirement versus their Arkansans that were not subjected to the work requirement and look for differences in outcome. But that is vulnerable a little bit to um, basically- Something about Arkansas. Uh, well, well, basically to confounding data specific to the state that they were in. So they used the adults in the other three states to create a difference in difference in difference model. And that helps to wash out some of the possible confounding variables they might not have counted for if they'd only compared Arkansans to Arkansans, if that makes sense. Makes sense. Right, so they had three primary outcomes. They wanted to look at the percentage of respondents with Medicaid, the per percentage of respondents who are uninsured, and the percentage of respondents reporting any employment. Their secondary outcomes were a number of, work, of hours worked per week, and the percentage of respondents satisfying any category of community engagement requirement, and the percentage of respondents with employer-sponsored insurance. So through this relatively complex analysis, what they found out over their assessment of approximate almost 6,000 respondents was that the, um, the take home message was that the work, work requirements actually didn't change the employment status significantly of anybody in the target uh, population, which of, uh, of, of note was majority respondents were non-Hispanic white, which actually corresponds to Medicaid enrollees in every state except for Texas, Arizona, and California. Um, Texas, Arizona, and California, the majority of Medicaid enrollees are Hispanic, but in every other state in the United States, um, the majority of enrollees are non-Hispanic white, white patients. And so they found out that basically, the intervention had sort of not really the desired effect. Patients, Depends on what your desired well, effect is. That's true. If, if your desired effect is just to get patient, get just to pare down the Medicaid rules, then it worked because 17,000 patients came off the Medicaid rules. But if your goal is actually to have people more gainfully employed or to encourage community involvement, they actually found or out. Or encouraged them to get pregnant, which also exempted you from the requirement. I guess, you know, they didn't evaluate for that. So I can't speak specifically to that particular aspect of the study. Um, but they did find that 95% of the target population met requirements for or qualified for an exemption from the work requirements. However, they still had a significant percentage of people who fell off of the roles because of a combination of things which included the fact that 
40, about 44% of them weren't sure that their requirements applied to them. Um, only 21% of the people in the target population thought that they would be subject to the new requirements. And that might be based off of a, a host of things, um, varying from literacy um, to access to the information to comprehension. Um, they, they actually noted that 15, about 15% 15 of the respondents outside of the targeted age group incorrectly believed they were subject to the requirements. And that while um, the majority of respondents were actually engaging in the required activities, um, the reporting was somewhat spotty. And it was spotty for a couple of reasons. Some of them, the most common reason actually for them not reporting was a belief that they, even though the things that they were doing did satisfy that requirement, the people in the, in the actual study didn't believe that they were. So they didn't believe that what they were doing, they didn't understand that what they were doing actually did meet the work requirement. But the, when, they were, when they were surveyed, it was determined that 95% of the people that they that they surveyed were actually meeting that requirement. And then uh, I think an important statistic is lack of internet access um, affected 32% of, of the participants, which means that, you know, a fairly significant percentage, like almost a third of people who were targeted by this particular instrument actually weren't able to necessarily report their meaningful work activities because they didn't have internet access. So 95% of these people were meeting the requirements, but mm -hmm. many of them, if not most, lost Medicaid anyway because they couldn't or didn't know they were supposed to or didn't know how to report their activities. Yeah, exactly. And so they found that, you know, looking at all of their statistics, they were able to kind of imply a reduction in Medicaid enrollment of 12 percentage points well within their confidence intervals, um, showing that loss of Medicaid coverage was accompanied by a significant increase in the percentage of adults who were uninsured, which isn't surprising. So basically what happened is adults were knocked off of Medicaid, even though they were participating in these community activities that they were being asked to do. They didn't go into employment that then covered them for you know, employer covered insurance. So they just ended up increasing the number of uninsured adults in that state, which I don't think is a desirable outcome. No, probably not what they were going for. Yeah. So I think that um, it's something to consider when you are, you know, thinking about social interventions. And, you know, I think that one of the things that they noted was that the implementation of the policy was sort of plagued by confusion among many rollees. Um, lack of internet access was a barrier to reporting information. It is to be noted that in December of 2018, late in December of 2018, um, Arkansas did add a telephone option to try to help improve uh, the reporting, but it was still kind of not very satisfactory. And that only a third of patients who were subjected to the policy um, had had not had heard nothing of it, but 44% of them weren't sure whether they applied to them. So again, that's this might be a combined element of you know awareness, literacy, and comprehension. They did uh, point out possible flaws in their study, including something interesting called social desirability bias, which is a tendency to answer in a manner that will be viewed favorably by others. So over-reporting good behavior and under-reporting bad behavior. So it's possible that the people who were called, even though it was an anonymous survey, might have over-reported work-seeking behaviors or community engagement or under-reported not having done that because of the social desirability confounder. Yeah, that um, makes sense. Yeah. So I think that that is an interesting, you know, potential, potential bias to that. But they did want to say that, you know, 
based off of their, their survey, they did feel that um, this work requirement was associated with significant loss of Medicaid coverage and a rise in the percentage of uninsured persons, but didn't have any significant changes in employment or employer provided insurance. And in fact, the vast majority, 95% of people who were targeted by the policy already met the requirement or should have been exempt. And many of them were just unaware or confused or lacked access to being able to report it. So I think that it's something highlighting some of the barriers to patients who are in the lowest and most vulnerable socioeconomic um, quartile to be able to obtain proper health care coverage. Yeah, I'm glad they did this study because one thing that stood out to me is how like logical and reasonable some of the requirements were like only 20 hours a week you could do community service instead at 30 to 49 years old like that all kind of like makes some sense you can think to yourself huh yeah those people probably should get jobs if they can um, but still it didn't have the desired effects and I'm glad they did the study because a lot of the times you know especially in like policy making realms you think of something that kind of sounds like a good idea and then you do it. And now potentially if other states are thinking of it, they can at least use this data if they want to. Um, it's available for them to make decisions. I know this isn't the most clinically relevant study um, for our dermatologists out there, and I don't want to make this podcast like overtly political or anything, but I'm a bit of a bleeding heart and I see Medicaid patients and I know you do too, Michelle. So I mm -hmm. think it's at least helpful to know um, what might be going on down there. I, I don't think making Medicaid enrollment more difficult is what we want to do for our people. I agree. I think providing more resources for job training and access to programs that help people to find gain, gainful employment might be a better way to go. All right, we got two more here. We'll try to fly through them fairly quickly because I know this is one of our longer episodes. I uh, got another one from the New England Journal of Medicine. This one was from June 2019, and it's uh, about scabies. So the title is Mass Drug Administration for Scabies, Two Years of Follow-Up. Uh, this is out of Australia and Fiji. The authors include Lucio Romani and Andrew C. Steer. Um, it's ostensibly a global health thing, but I think it's got some clinical relevance to what we're doing here. So uh, two years ago, this group of people did some mass treatments for scabies because apparently the folks in Fiji were suffering with scabies and it's a bunch of different islands. So you can do sort of one intervention in one place and another intervention in another place. So they had about 2000 people. Um, they had some of them do quote standard care. Um, which was they gave permethrin to the people with scabies and then to their contacts, which is kind of like what we do in clinic or what some dermatologists feel comfortable doing in clinic. You give the permethrin to the patient and then you prescribe um, permethrin to all of their household members. And then there was another group of people where like just everybody on that island or whatever got permethrin. And then there was a similar thing where everybody on the island or, or village or whatever it was got ivermectin, oral ivermectin. Um, and the upshot is that the oral ivermectin did better then, and they also did better now. So like 94% reduction from baseline in the prevalence of scabies um, one year afterward, and then two years afterward, 89% um, compared to like 70 and 60% in the other groups. And I was also interested in adverse events because, you know, ivermectin is an oral medicine, and I had to look that up in the original article. Um, and it was pretty minimal. So our adverse events were more common with ivermectin than other people, uh, about 15% versus 7%. But no event was serious or lasted for more than, than seven days. And the most common event was itching and then also headache. 
So not too much. So one of the reasons I thought it might be useful to have this article is because I think sometimes dermatologists have kind of this ethical quandary about like, should I prescribe a medicine to people I've never seen before who are also in the house and could potentially spread scabies? And I've seen some people who were like, well, you really should talk to their their PCP and get the, the medicine prescribed. And then I've seen people who have stamps of the permethrin SIG, and they just stamp a bunch of prescription pads and hand a stack of them to the patients. And I think that this article uh, suggests that you know, these medicines are not dangerous and they do a lot of good for a lot of people. And if ivermectin is pretty much okay, then you should probably be okay during permethrin, at least from like a medical ethical standpoint. Medical legal is a little bit hairier. If somebody does have some kind of side effect that they're blaming on the medicine that you prescribed and you've never seen them, then it might be a little bit more difficult for you to defend yourself. But still. Also, the fact that ivermectin was so effective was... Um, interesting to me. We normally use permethrin first line, I think, because we feel better prescribing topical medicines. But permethrin's a really annoying to use, you know, all over the body, from the neck down, get sleep like that, then shower off. It's a lot easier to just take a handful of pills, and it's quite effective, and the adverse events were few and mild. So I feel like I'd kind of want to take ivermectin if I had scabies. I feel like I probably would too. I wonder if they did the proper like sheets washing and clothing washing and stuff with both arms of this trial. It's a good question. I'll admit that I did not thoroughly review the original study, so I couldn't tell you. Um, I know that I'm always really adamant about talking about the washing of the bedtime accoutrements um, when we're talking about permethrin. I tr I'd like to think I'm just as aggressive talking about it when we use the oral ivermectin. I wonder if it's as necessary, though, based off of how long the drug stays in the system, but I think you're always better off doing kind of everything you can to get rid of scabies because ectoparasites are no fun. Yeah. Um, anyway, that's all I had about that one. Just uh, maybe people will be more likely to prescribe scabies to some household contacts and try to get rid of those bugs. Yep. And then our last article is a retrospective review of dupilumab for hand dermatitis. Spoiler alert, it works. Um, so is that because this, hand dermatitis is atopic dermatitis? <laughs> That's a good question. So this is actually a letter to the editor, and they talk about how hand dermatitis is common, affecting about 10% of the population. I think with that should come a caveat that you couldn't, you can't conceptually use dupilumab for every patient with hand dermatitis because that's way too great of a patient population to use this medication in, due to its expense. Um, but they do point out due to its location, it can impact quality of life. We know this especially from psoriasis studies. And patients with severe hand dermatitis might not respond adequately to topical medications and may require systemic therapies. I know I've personally had to use um, oral methotrexate and oral mycothelium mofetel for patients who have severe hand dermatitis because of its limitation on activities of daily living. Uh, so dupilumab, which of course is a monoclonal antibody against the IL-4 alpha receptor and functions by blocking the action of IL-4 and IL-13, which are inflammatory cytokines that are implicated in the pathogenesis of atopic dermatitis, have, has had initial case reports showing favorable use for dupilumab in hand dermatitis, which suggested there may be similarities in the pathophysiology of atopic derm in hand dermatitis. And the first case report was by Oosterhaven et al., and this patient had 
uh, was a female patient who had severe chronic atopic hand eczema and atopic dermatitis. And she failed alotretinoin. So again, that tells you she's not from the US. So I actually looked the study up. She's from the Netherlands. So Groningen, the Netherlands, which I should have guessed from the author's name, Oosterhaven. Um, so <laughs> she failed alotretinoin, cyclosporin, azathioprine, mycophenolite, uh, mofetil, tricolomus, and methotrexate. So a lot of big dogs that did not work for her, uh, but she showed striking improvement with dupilumab. Um, at the beginning of treatment, her hand eczema severity index score, so another severity measurement, the HESI, was 244 out of 360. And by week 16, her, ex her hand eczema was almost clear with a HESI score of 16 out of 360. 360 There's, total points here, man. That's, that sounds like it takes half a year to do. Forms to fill this out. My forms got forms. So, <laughs> um, they had another case report with three patients with severe chronic recalcitrant hand eczema that had substantial responses to dupilumab, ranging from 80% improvement to complete clearance. And there were two publications of patients demonstrating improvement in hand dermatitis with dupilumab, uh, but there was there hasn't really been a systematic review of patients with and without hand dermatitis. So they reviewed all records of patients prescribed to dupilumab at Tufts Medical Center, where this paper originates from March 2017 to July 2018, and they enrolled uh, 126 patients that had been prescribed dupilumab. They were able to analyze 66 patients after they excluded patients that had only used the medicine for fewer than three months, and those prescribed dupilumab for non-exhibitous indications and those with incomplete data. And then the patients were allowed to continue other therapies, such as topical steroids, because of course this is a retrospective study, so you know they weren't creating this intervention. Uh, of the patients, they had six patients with hand dermatitis, sorry, yeah, with dermatitis affecting only the hands, 32% with hand and body involvement, and 28 out of those 66 had dermatitis on the body, but not on the hands. Other diagnoses besides atopic derm included dyshydrotic eczema, atopic derm, contact dermatitis. The patients had usually tried over four other therapies, which is usually my experience when patients have bad hand dermatitis is that we've literally thrown the kitchen sink at it. But Prior we hope they don't use the kitchen sink too much. <laughs> exactly. Don't wash your hands as often. Um, and then the most common systemic therapies had been prednisone, which 42% of these patients had been on, mycophenolate mofetil, which 32% had been on, and cyclosporin, which was 16%, which is a bit surprising to me, but that's okay. So they found that after treatment with dupilumab, the investigator's global assessment of patients with hand dermatitis decreased. Uh, by 1.54 points from 3.26 to 1.72. And this is one of those things that's like a golf score, lower is better. Um, and 40% achieved a um, investigator's global assessment of zero or one, which is pretty mild involvement. This is in people with hand dermatitis in addition to dermatitis of the body? This is anybody, who, all comers with hand dermatitis. So all of the people they assessed with hand dermatitis that were treated with dupilumab had a significant improvement by 1.54 points. Um, the uh, average idea of atopic derm patients without hand involvement, so everybody in the study that didn't have hand involvement, decreased by 2.27 points from 3.45 to 1.18. So they were worse at baseline, uh, the people who had atopic derm without hand involvement. And probably the reason for that is that the atopic derm patients without hand involvement might have had more body surface area than the ones that had hand only or the hand involvement might have pushed people to maybe use the dupilumab earlier in patients with also atopic derm. And so they had a decrease in the investigative global assessment by 2.27 points in the patients who had only uh, atopic dermatitis without hand involvement, with 63.6 of those patients achieving an investigative global analysis, uh, sorry, assessment of zero or one. So that was great. Um, 
Body surface area of patients with hand dermatitis decreased by 15.9%, whereas the average BSA of patients without hand involvement decreased by 24.6, but again, probably for the same reasons we discussed earlier. And um, so patient outcomes, 96.7% of patients with hand dermatitis reported improvement in pruritus, six out of six hand derm only patients um, who had dermatitis related pain uh, reported improvement, and 11 patients with hand fissuring improved uh, reported improvement with 10 out of 11 reporting complete resolution of fissures. So a lot of significant changes in patients who have pretty difficult chronic to treat, uh, chronic um, difficult to treat dermatitis. Limitations of the study are small sample size. Um, response rates can be confounded by patients that are continuing other dermatitis therapies due to extensive disease, but they propose that dupilumab could be a good treatment for patients with hand involvement um, of, due to hand dermatitis with or without atopic dermatitis affecting other parts of the body. And they, of course, recommend further studies. So potentially a treatment option for patients who failed other therapies, although I think getting it approved for a patient with hand-only dermatitis would be very difficult. I mean, it makes sense. My personal feeling is like hand dermatitis isn't really a diagnosis. Like, is it mm -hmm. atopic dermatitis? Is it irritant contact dermatitis? It's probably multifactorial. Could be so. psoriasis. I know. it's Basically, hand dermatitis is a wastebasket for things that cause itching and discomfort on the hands. And it could be contact derm, it could be dyshydrotic eczema, it could be irritant contact from our hand washing patients, it could be atopic derm. And I think that there's probably a requirement for better stratification. I think we're resistant to biopsy hand dermatitis in most cases because biopsying palms and soles is kind of morbid compared to a biopsy on the trunk or extremities. Plus yeah. a lot of those conditions all look the same under the microscope, right? I, you're the dermatopathologist. That's my impression. <laughs> they can have more features that are overlapping. That is correct. So for example, palmoplantar pustulosis can have a lot of overlapping features with severe dyshydrotic eczema. They can be difficult to tell apart. But, but it makes therapy. sense that, you know, dupilumab could work. Um, this, by the way, was from the journal Dermatology. Um, in May 2019, authors include Nicole Lee, David Rosmarin, and the title is a retrospective review of dupilumab for hand dermatitis. Okay, we got one little treat for our listeners before we sign off today. Yes, so we um, reviewed in our last uh, podcast the sort of informational uh, publication about systemic absorption of sunscreens. And so this is a little response from the dermatologist that publication, um, who spoke with the corresponding author, David G. Strauss, from the publication that we reviewed last time, who is a um, dermatologist that works with the FDA. So he actually works for the Division of Applied Regulatory Science, Office of Clinical Pharmacology, Office of Translational Science, and Center for Drug Evaluation and Research at the FDA in Silver Spring about the findings of the study we presented last time. And basically, they asked him some questions. So the study confirms the systemic absorption of four active sunscreen ingredients. What are the implications of this finding? What are the next steps? And he basically said kind of the same thing we said, which is systemic absorption of sunscreen ingredients supports the need for further studies. The FDA provided guidance for study for products that are absorbed, which we now know includes these sunscreen ingredients. And they need studies including systemic carcinogenicity and developmental and reproductive studies. They um, said that there's, you know, limited data on the health effects of sunscreen, and the FDA issued a proposed rule to update regulatory requirements for sunscreen products. As a part of this rule, they're asking industry and other interested parties for additional safety data regarding the absorption of 12 of the 16 active sunscreen ingredients. So the reason why it's 12 out of the 16 is they've already classified definitively four of those. 
Two of them are the ones they've classified as generally recognized as safe and effective, which are zinc oxide and titanium dioxide. And then there's two which they've basically put in the naughty box, which is PABA and tinosorb. So basically every other sunscreen ingredient that isn't one of those four, they have asked for more studies. Uh, the dermatologist then asked, why has sunscreen not been subjected to standard drug safety testing? And his response is, you know, sunscreens are readily available over the counter, but science has evolved over the past couple of years, and now we can detect low levels of ingredients in the blood. This wasn't necessarily available in the past. And it was unknown whether most active ingredients in sunscreen were absorbed, so the FDA did their study, which found that indeed they were. As more data about systemic absorption of sunscreen products is collected, what should dermatologists consider when discussing sunscreen products with patients, especially in regard to safety concerns? And he emphasizes, just as we did, that this doesn't mean people should stop using sunscreen. Uh, while we're developing better data, customers, uh, consumers should consider continue to use sunscreen and other sun protective methods. We recommend still a broad spectrum sunscreen with an SPF of at least 15 as a critical element of sun uh, of skin cancer prevention strategies, along with other sun protective behaviors such as sun protective clothing and adequately covering parts of the body, wearing a hat, sunglasses, and avoiding peak hours of exposure. And then, of course, there are the generally recognized as safe sunscreen ingredients, zinc oxide and titanium dioxide. Um, so additional data is not required for those ingredients. And so, you know, I, I'm, I'm proud of us that our conclusions were in keeping with the author of the actual study, so that's nice. Um, and I think that maybe lends a little bit of um, logic and, you know, calm to the dialogue also about these sunscreen ingredients. Uh, I hope so. There's some of these issues that I don't think logic and calm can take much root in. Um, but it's nice, thanks to the Dermatologist publication and to Dr. Strauss for that little interview. Nice picture of him on the article, too. Yeah, it's nice guy. to know what it looks like, yeah. Nice suit. <laughs> all right, listeners, thanks so much for joining us. Um, that's all we got today. Oh, we do a recap. I can't forget the recap. Okay, so today we learned a lot about hydradenitis operativa. For example, we learned about zinc gluconates. We learned about de-roofing procedures. We learned about prednisone pulses, spironolactone, metformin. All those potentially helpful in Hurley staging might be helpful and might overcome the Hurley hurdles. We <laughs> talked about nevus sebaceous excision, fewer complications if you do it in adulthood. We talked about Medicaid work requirements, how they uh, don't seem to work. I guess I'll leave it at that. We talked about uh, scabies, at least in Fiji, uh, just treating the whole population with ivermectin was pretty good with minimal side effects and way less scabies. And then dupilumab seems to be an option for hand dermatitis. Thanks for joining us today. Um, we'll see you next time. Maybe we'll talk a little bit more about HS. Maybe we'll talk about some other stuff. Lots of good research coming out.